Good to see everybody this morning. We're going to go ahead and pray and then jump into um, one of our more informal lessons. This is, if you're new with us, every couple of weeks we typically pause on the, um, on the, on the, the kind of formal teaching that we're doing in our doctrine class. Um, a lot of times our class, this theology class, has been like backing up the dump truck and just unloading avalanches of information. And so it's kind of nice to take a week sometimes just to process that and to try to answer some questions that have arisen during the course of, of our class. So um, we're really only two weeks deep into um, our eschatology section, dealing with the last things and times um, but we had a, a bunch of really good questions that came in um, after Stevens, not because he didn't address them, but just more things than we even had time to really talk about. So I'm going to pray, and then we will dive into that. So let's bow and go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Lord's Day where the sun has risen and we as your people can gather together to open your word, to come before you with open hearts, open minds. Um, I ask, Lord, that for those of us Uh, who are here this morning, you would give us just clear thoughts and that uh, we would be able to understand and and rightly grasp the truth of Scripture. Lord, we believe that your word is alive, it is true, it is eternal, and there's nothing more important that we could commit ourselves to knowing. It's in your word, Lord, that we come to know not just information. It's in your word that we come to know you. And as we come to know you, we are moved towards worship and Christ-likeness and joy. And so we ask for your blessing this morning um, as we talk about uh, the truth of Scripture. Amen. Okay, so just to kind of remind you where we are, um, Scott Huffman gave us a brief introduction to the topic of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. So we're looking at things that are future, uh, what happens at the end of the world, and also what happens to us, what happens at the end of life. So Stephen, last week, gave us a, um, an overview of what we could call personal eschatology. So we talked about uh, death. We talked about the intermediate state. Where does your soul go when you die? We know what happens to the body. We can see that. But what happens to the immaterial part of us? And then what is sort of the eternal uh, destiny of our soul and our body? So we talked about resurrection, such things. Did you want to do a quick recap on that, or is that fair? That's fair. That's fair. Okay. Well, like I said, we had a whole bunch of questions that came in. So um, if you guys have questions this morning, we'd love to talk to those. But we're going to privilege those people who actually sent in questions. So a little bit of motivation, maybe. Um, And if you guys have some questions also, we'd love to get to those. But we did have several uh, questions that were sent in. And I'm just going to start. These are in no particular order. These weren't in the order they were received. Um, But Stephen, you talked about um, a definition of death as not the end of existence, but as a kind of separation. So physical death would be separation of the soul from the body. Um, So a question that that raises is, um, is it possible for the souls or the spirits of deceased people, humans, to be present and active on the earth? A simple way to put this, are ghosts real? Um, Is it possible to talk to those who have passed on? Um, Maybe some of you have heard of that, people who claim to uh, be able to contact the dead and maybe speak to or hear from a dead relative or a famous person from history. How should we think about that biblically? Um, Yeah. One of the things that um, comes to mind, especially having gone through the study, it seems like Scripture indicates that there is a place that the soul goes. So there's, there's a destination that's in mind at the point of separation. There's a place where our souls arrive at. So 
to think that ghosts are just going around or a soul is going around in our present state wouldn't be something that we see indicated in Scripture, but there are a couple passages that come to mind um, that we wanted to kind of talk through and think through, like, are these um, events in Scripture that we see? We have to reconcile that with, with this sort of question. So I know one that came up that you mentioned was the Witch of Endor. So why don't you yes. talk about that passage yes. so a bit? I'll just affirm and agree with what you said. When the soul is separated from the body, it departs to a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the righteous, um, we know Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for a Christian, death means being in the presence of Jesus. For an unbeliever, um, it's punishment, it's judgment. And we see that with uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke, is that Luke 16? 16. Yeah. Um, that he wishes he could go back and talk to his relatives and warn them, mm-hmm. but that's not an option. He is constrained. He's confined uh, to that place of torment. So the one tricky passage that often comes up, and maybe some of you are thinking of this. Anybody know the, the story in 1 Samuel? Uh, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Um, we have a very interesting story where the prophet Samuel has died. And King Saul, the first king of Israel, is getting ready to go into battle. And he is very concerned about the outcome. He wants to know what's going to happen. And previously, in, in Saul's administration, he had access to, uh, to divine information. He had access to God through the prophet. The prophet would reveal God's word to him. And he was really missing his old friend, Samuel. Um, Saul, at this point, has been cut off from access to God. God's taken his hands off of him um, because of his sin. And Saul is wishing he could have one final word from Samuel. So he goes to a medium, um, and asks her to bring up Samuel and to speak with her, and to speak with, with Samuel, because he wants to hear a message from somebody who could give him a word from the Lord. Um, now, this woman is very hesitant to do so, because according to uh, Old Testament law, this was a, a crime punishable by death. Um, the Mosaic Covenant forbid witchcraft and any sort of uh, trying to contact the dead because this is false worship. It is, it is seen as uh, unfaithfulness to worshiping God, trusting God, reaching out to some other spiritual entity, some other spiritual source of truth, rather than the one true God. So she said, what are you trying to do, get me killed? And he promised her that no harm would come to her. And so she agrees. And, um, it, and it's a really fascinating story if you look it up, First Samuel 28. And when Samuel appears, well, let's just look it up. Um, turn there, if you will, First Samuel 28. Sword drill. Yes. Her reaction, I think, is instructive and kind of tells us how we should understand what's going on. So let's just start in verse, um, verse 9. The woman said to him, to Saul, surely you know what Saul has done. Saul is in disguise here. She, she doesn't know this is the king. You know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And then verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. She's terrified. So here's the question. 
If this woman is a professional, if she's used to bringing up people from the dead and conversing with them, why does she lose it when she actually brings somebody up from the dead? Why does she cry out with a loud voice? Why is she startled? Why is she terrified? Well, here's, this is sort of reading between the lines, but I think this is why. Um, I don't think we actually have the power to bring someone up from the dead. Um, we don't have the power to loose someone from the bonds of Sheol to bring them back and speak with them. I think what this woman, what mediums do, and this is true of mediums today, by the way, is when they claim to be speaking with a deceased human, the departed soul of, of a human being, they're actually conversing with a demon. She has this familiar spirit. She's bringing, calling up, summoning this demon, and demons can be active and present in our world. And these demons can very easily impersonate people who have departed. So someone may claim to have a message for you from your great-grandmother. And, they may be, and this supposed spirit can say things that only your great-grandmother would know. Well, that's very easy. Demons have quite the big network. They've observed all of life since you know, the dawn of creation. So it's no surprise to us that they could have that information, that they could impersonate and deceive people. So I think this woman um, is in on the joke, and she knows she's just talking with a demon, but she makes money off of people, people who want to converse with someone from the dead. So she's expecting this demon to show up that she's used to talking to. Um, and then the actual Samuel shows up. This is not what she was expecting, not what she was prepared for. Now she's talking with the departed soul of a prophet of God, and it, it blows her away, and she's terrified. So I think that when we look at this story um, where Samuel comes up, and then um, you, you can read the, the conversation that they have there, they have here. Uh, she sees his appearance, and Saul says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And then Saul and Samuel have this conversation. Um, I don't think this is normal. I, I don't think that this is something that the woman had the power to do. Um, who is it that sends prophets and communicates through prophets? Well, it's God. So this is God bringing back the soul of a departed prophet to give one last message. So I don't think that this teaches, is teaching us that we can expect to converse with the dead. Um, anytime you have a medium who's claiming to contact the dead, you're delving into demonic territory. That's messing around with very real spiritual power, but it's demonic. These are fallen angels, and it's not to be trifled with. Christians should have no dabbling with trying to summons or communicate with the dead. It's, it's demonic. And this woman was very familiar with doing that and deceiving people, but she got a lot more than she bargained for, I think, on that day. Mm -hmm. So this is the one passage that could maybe indicate we could communicate with the dead or that the dead spirits um, of departed people could be present in the earth. But this seems to be a very, very unique situation. It's not just any dead man. It's Samuel, a prophet of God. And it's not just any person who's needing a message. It's a king of Israel and the medium who claimed to be able to do this is freaked out because this is not what she was expecting. So to me, all those factors seem to indicate this isn't normal, um, and we shouldn't expect to communicate with the dead. Um, I have talked to someone uh, in the last few years who thought they were communicating with someone from the dead. Um, they were receiving messages from someone they loved, someone they knew who had died. And I just shared with this girl, I said, I, I, I believe you that you're receiving messages, information, but this is not of God. This is not holy, and you need to, to forsake and flee from any of that kind of engagement because this is not uh, something that pleases God. And according to uh, God's word, this person who's a Christian, they're not here on the earth talking to you. They're with Jesus. They're in heaven. So we, we should not try to engage with them. We need to seek the Lord when we want information or guidance or comfort, whatever it may be.
So that was a, a good question um, about the departed souls of human beings. Uh, second question that also has to do with death. Um, if our bodies are destined for resurrection, how should Christians think about cremation? Is cremation permissible or is it unbiblical um, to burn the body if Jesus died for the body and is going to resurrect the body? Mm-hmm. Would it interfere with that? Yeah, so some of these questions we've talked ahead of time, so it's kind of like we're just cluing you into some of these conversations. So he's not totally punting to me saying make it up on the spot, so that's helpful. But um, what we've kind of talked about through with cremation is that there's not a passage in Scripture that clearly says do or don't cremate. But what we can observe is how the um, saints in Scripture treated the body. Um, it seemed like there was a high level of respect for the body, um, it was something that was important even after passing, um, especially what comes to mind is thinking of Abraham. Um, the first piece of land he bought was to bury his wife, Sarah. Um, that was important to him. The body was important. Joseph said, take my bones with you when you go back to the land. That was important. That was a, a statement of faith, trusting in God's promises. So it seemed like there was significance to the body um, based on um, an act of faith, um, but that doesn't mean that It's uh, an act of sin one way or the other if you choose to do um, either or. Um, The other thing we talked about was just from a a burial standpoint, and this is something J.D. came up with or thought through, because I hadn't actually um, presided over a funeral service yet, but I think it makes a difference um, when there's a, um, a soulless body in the room when you're actually presenting the gospel to people. Um, There's a certain reality that hits people differently when they see a deceased body rather than um, just just an urn um, that's that's got a lid on it. I think it makes an impact on people. And when you're thinking about, um, I want to, um, whether you're planning your own funeral, um, how you'd want those things to go, or or thinking about loved ones, um, what we want to do in everything is seek to do it for the sake of the gospel. Um, we want to do it for Christ. So um, thinking through, how can I glorify Christ even in my death, even in my passing? How is it going to be most impactful for God's kingdom? And making sure that that's the focus, um, whichever way you land on that. Yeah, I think for some people's concern, there's two concerns. One is that, does this dishonor God? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just ask people, while it's not sin and it's not necessary you know, to do burial or cremation, I think there's freedom there. I would encourage people to think through it and have the right reasons for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. If there's just an aversion to death and an inability to look at the body, you know, I I don't think it's right for us to try to sanitize things and and shield people from the reality of death. I do think there's fruitful um, um, opportunity for reflecting on death and, and the gospel and even the hope of the resurrection that Jesus died not just for their soul but also for their body. He's going to raise up this body. Um, but for some people, it's just a financial consideration or it's a convenience thing. Someone dies in a different state, and by the time they can get the family together, you know, having an open casket yeah. funeral isn't an option. So there's definitely freedom there. Um, but the other concern is not just is this honoring God and honoring a body made in the image of God. The other question is, does this in any way uh, interfere with the process of resurrection? And to that, we have to remember that the God who raises up our bodies from the dead also spoke the universe into existence and this is no problem for him. Um, it's not too hard for him to regather all those molecules from wherever they may be in the universe and reconstitute them into a body. Um, similarly, the scripture speaks about the sea giving up the dead that is in it. We think about what happens, not to be morbid, but think about what happens to a body lost at sea. 
There's little critters, there's plankton, there's bigger critters, there's bigger critters that eat the little critters. And after a short amount of time, that body is not in one place anymore. Um, it's, in, it, it's spread out quite a bit. Um, and this is no problem for the God who spoke the world into existence to reconstitute our bodies and raise us um, from the dead. Um, so keeping the body intact and in one place is, is not something that God needs our help in order to bring about his plan of resurrection. So um, I think we should think through burial and cremation. Um, cremation is, kind of has some pagan origins. Um, it, it shows a view that the body is, is sort of disposable and meaningless, and the soul is what really matters, and people often say that's not really them. Well, it is really them. It's part of them. Um, but if, I do think it's possible for a Christian to, to do cremation and to still honor God, honor the body, and have hope of the resurrection. So there's freedom there uh, for those of you who may be thinking through that. Um, and we would not try to shame someone or coerce someone into doing one or the other. There's definitely freedom there because Scripture is silent on it. Although it is instructive to look at how the people of God in history, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, have typically uh, placed a high value on the body and really honored the physical body in death. Um, another good question. Um, is hell the same for everyone? Um, is my unbelieving neighbor, who's a sweet lady, uh, if she dies apart from Christ, is she destined to face the same judgment as you know, wicked rulers in history who have committed genocide and all these horrible atrocities? Is hell the same for everyone, or are there degrees of punishment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus taught um, in the Gospels, I'm trying to remember what chapter in Matthew, but he's talking and teaching about hell, and he actually talks about a severe beating and a lesser beating. Uh, There's also passages that talk about um, being worse for Corazon and Bethsaida than for Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is a just God, um, and the judgment of hell is retributive, um, a retribution of judgment. It's not this sort of I'm angry with you and I'm just lashing out, but it's actually just. Um, it's, it's a right punishment that fits the right crime. So it also is, is personal. Um, it's not this corporate judgment, but it is individual, and we will stand before the judge. And so we have to understand that that, that judgment is um, uh, it's individual. It's personal to what you did in your rebellion against God um, and your sin. So it, it is um, proportionate to but it's also the same place for everyone who, who falls into that category of, of not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, but instead sitting and staying in the rebellion against God. Yes. What do you think? I agree. Um, and just to encourage you guys, as you think through different questions that you're trying to answer, um, different biblical questions, um, what Stephen just did is what we all want to do. We want to first ask, is there any clear passages that speak to this? And you brought up two. Jesus talks about servants re- uh, receiving beatings to various degrees for punishment mm-hmm. when he's talking about judgment. So that, that seems to be talking about this. And then another passage where Jesus pronounces woes on two cities. It says it will be worse for you than for these other cities on the day of judgment. So we have a couple passages that speak directly to it, but that's not all you did. You also reasoned from what you know to be true about the nature of God. So God is just. And so the nature of his judgment must be specific and personal and just. To say that it's not would be in conflict with what we know to be true about the attributes of God. So as you guys think through different questions, those are two different grids we're always thinking through. Does scripture speak explicitly to this? And also, how does, the, how does what I know to be true about God 
apply to this specific question. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's a good approach to answering questions like this. So we would teach here that hell, um, uh, even the person who receives, to use Jesus's analogy, the lightest beating, uh, we can't fathom mm -hmm. uh, the least of the judgments of hell. We would never want this, this concept we're talking about to lower or minimize our, our understanding of the severity of hell. Um, but we do need to acknowledge there are degrees of judgment because God is just and because Jesus said so. So that's how we would, we would think about that. Um, another good question that came in, Stephen, you mentioned some wrong views, and one of them was soul sleep. Uh, people who believe that when you die, your soul is in this unconscious state, sort of waiting for resurrection. And someone asks, if soul sleep is unbiblical, why do we see Paul use the language of sleep to refer to the death of believers. He refers to those who have gone on as those who now sleep. Mm -hmm. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so there are passages in Scripture that refer to death as sleeping. Um, so what does Scripture mean by that? How do we understand that? Well, what we can't do is take um, a passage and another passage and then say that they contradict each other. That's, that's not what we see in Scripture in regards to the authority and the consistency and the inerrancy of Scripture. So what we have to do is we have to say, in both the context, what is being described, and how do we reconcile the one consistent view that God's presenting of himself and of truth in his word. So what we do see is um, passages in regards to a consciousness in regards to the soul after death. Um, so there's an awareness that goes on um, when, when people are in hell, and, and Luke 16 especially describes an awareness of, of torment, um, that they know what's going on. But it seems like more what Paul's indicating when he talks about dead, uh, the dead being asleep, um, what he's referring to is a human perspective on what, is, um, appear, what appears with the body, with the physical form of the body. And what he, it, it's simply a description of what that body looks like in physical form, not necessarily what the, the soul itself is experiencing during that departing from the body. So I think that that's, to me makes most sense of both those passages and to provide consistency to say, I can't just dismiss these passages that, that talk about souls actually speaking to the Lord and being in the presence with the Lord and aware of what's going on or even being aware of what's going on in Sheol and experiencing torment. So to take those passages and say, oh, it's not something they're really experiencing. They're just asleep until the resurrection and nothing's really happening in that intermediate state would be to actually have to just cut out parts of the Bible um, and just say this is, this is not really um, something that's significant. So that, that to me makes the most sense of that, of Paul's description of that that term. Yeah, soul sleep is um, a formal position. It's an official label for something. Um, but the Bible does use the metaphor of sleep, um, but it's a flexible metaphor. But to your point, it seems to use the metaphor of sleep to describe the body and not to describe the soul. So when we see a person who's dead, you know, Jesus said they're sleeping, or Paul refers to those who now sleep referring to the experience of the body, not to the soul, not saying the soul is unconscious yeah. and unaware. So yeah. that's good clarification. Another similar question, trying to, to reconcile different passages. Um, in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says that in hell, people are, quote, cast away from the presence of the Lord, end quote. But in Revelation 14.10, it says that the lost, quote, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, 
and in the presence of the Lamb. So please elaborate. In what senses are these both or both of these scriptures true? Um, and I think I know where this question is coming from. There's many people who really recoil away from the concept of hell in general. And anytime they see language of fire or suffering or some of these really intense depictions of, of hell, they want to sanitize those. And many people say, well, hell isn't really fire. It isn't really this or that. Those are just metaphors. Hell is just being separated from God. That's really what hell is. Hell is just separation from the Lord. And try to make it a purely um, sort of, you know, it's just distance from God. It's people getting what they wanted, which was not to be with the Lord, um, and, and saying that. And they can even point at, at this passage that um, in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that people are cast away from the presence of the Lord. And Revelation talks about them being outsiders, you know, not being allowed in. So um, is hell just separation from God? Um, how would, you, how would you speak to that in light of what Revelation 14.10 says? One. You're going to let me answer? Yeah, you okay. start. You've, you've set it up so well. Okay. Yeah, no, I think you just, you go. I'm almost there. Okay, I'll just keep going. Yeah. Um, when Scripture talks about being separated from God, we have, there, there's two senses in which we need to understand the presence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk, like we said earlier, just about the nature of God. Well, we know that God is omnipresent that God is everywhere. And the reason for that is that God is spirit, God is infinite, and he cannot be contained or limited to one place. Um, You can't limit God. That's why the psalmist says, if I make my bed in the heavens, you're there. If I go all the way down to the bottom of the sea, you're there. Anywhere I go, you're there. So you cannot ever escape the presence of God in that sense, that he is omnipresent, he is everywhere. Um, Hell does not exist apart from God's creative power. He made it. And hell does not keep existing apart from his sustaining power. Um, The thing that that holds hell together and energizes the the fires of hell is the active uh, power of God himself. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a certain sense, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And so to say that, um, that the wicked will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb is accurate. Um, They are in the presence of God in the sense that they are before him. He is beholding um, the judgment that is happening in hell. He is exercising that judgment. He's the source of it. And it glorifies him. It honors his holiness and his righteousness. Um, But he is not there in the sense of they are not enjoying his presence um, in the sense of his personal expression of love, grace, and blessing. So if I could just jump back into Exodus for a minute. If you guys remember this several weeks back, we, we talked a lot about um, the presence of God being a great blessing. So for Israel, uh, for God to be with them in the tabernacle, to manifest his presence among them, that was the infinite blessing. That's what they needed. And Moses even prays, Lord, if you don't go with us into the promised land, then don't send us from here. We'd rather just live here at the mountain unless you go with us. Now, was Moses saying that he was afraid if they marched off into the desert that that God was not there in sort of an omnipresent sense? No, he, he knows that God is everywhere. What Moses was asking for and desperate for was the personal blessing, the presence of God in the sense that he is relationally linked with them, loving them, blessing them, providing for them. So in, in that sense, hell is separation from God in the sense that it's not his, his face shining upon them. 
Um, you know, like the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. It's not like God has a literal face and that he can be not looking at you at a certain second. Um, that, that's an expression of his nearness, his, bl- his blessing, his provision, his love. Um, in hell, that is not experienced. Um, they are away from the presence of God in that sense, that there's no experience of grace, blessing, joy. They are relationally uh, distant from him. That does not mean that it's not his power energizing and sustaining judgment in hell. So these two questions are, we, we would not see that these texts are in contradiction. Um, and we would not want to exclude the omnipresence of God. Russell, you had a question? I think it's more than just a point of view. That maybe helps a little bit. Um, but they can see God in hell. They're very, very aware of God in hell because they're experiencing his wrath moment by moment. So there's an intense awareness of God, um, but it's not the, the loving, gracious side of God, if you would even use that language. I don't want to separate God's attributes, but they're not experiencing that. So there is a relational separation. Um, there's a relationship of hostility and enmity. Um, you know, husband and wife can be laying next to each other in the same bed and be 50 miles apart. If there's relational conflict and hostility, it's that kind of separation. So, yeah, Joe. So the question is, who is administering the punishment in hell? It's God himself. It's the righteous wrath of God, the active wrath of God being poured out. And right now that wrath is being stored up. Uh, we're told, for the day of wrath. So it comes from God. So it's not just God leaving people to themselves and kind of leaving them alone on some dark island far away. Um, God is active in that. So any other questions on, on that concept of hell uh, being, and, and how it's accurate to say that it's separation from God, but it's, it's more than that, and it's not just that. Hopefully that was clear and not muddying the water. I think it's I think it's two different two different things there. I think it's there's the active wrath of God where he's deliberately meeting out judgment. And it's hard for us to even understand what that would feel like. You know, we're we're given many different metaphors for that. But I do think there's also the psychological suffering of regret, of knowing that that um um things you did were wrong and knowing that you missed your opportunity and that God made you aware through creation that he was there and you suppressed that knowledge. I think there is a sense of loss um, and shame and regret um, that's part of it. 
Um, so that's added in. But I think the, the worst part of it is the direct judgment of God that's being actively poured out. But yeah, I think there's definitely awareness of all of that. Um, um, I was talking yesterday uh, you know, with, with someone who, who was mentioning this, or it was two days ago maybe, um, you know, it says in Philippians, when, when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Everybody's going to know. Everybody. Um, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. I mean, everybody's going to know. So I think there's a very strong consciousness of, of right and wrong, of missed opportunity, of regret, and of now, under, now I see, now I understand that truth that I always suppressed is now perpetually right in front of my face. That's part of the experience, for sure. So, yeah, Cody. Does it matter whether or not we see fire as a metaphor or as literal? Um, yes, it matters because God's word matters, so we want to get it right. Uh, I don't want to be sloppy and say, well, the Bible says this, but whatever you think doesn't really matter. Um, now, saying it matters, we can also be humble and say, this is hard to understand. It's not literal and metaphorical. It's one or the other. It can't be both. Um, it means something. So we want to get it right if we can. But we have to just be cautious and charitable in, in recognizing it's difficult to understand. Um, um, one of the, the descriptions, which you talked about, Gehenna, um, mm-hmm. as this word that's often translated hell. Gehenna, what you mentioned this last week, um, was this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem, that in the Old Testament was a place of pagan idol worship. They would worship Molech, and the worship of Molech was sacrificing babies by passing them through the fire. It was a horrible place. In the New Testament, you know, after captivity, after Babylon, the Jews were so repulsed by what they had done, they turned the Valley of Hinnom, this former place of pagan worship, they turned it into a trash dump. And that's the place, and there was still fire burning, but it wasn't the fire of sacrifice to pagan gods. It, they turned it into a trash dump. They would throw their garbage there. Um, the, the bodies of lepers and the diseased would be thrown there. Um, poor people, vagabonds who didn't have anywhere to be buried, had no family, they would dump their bodies there. So um, it, it was a foul-smelling place that was full of decay and rot and perpetual burning and fire. So it smelled horrible, it looked horrible, and Jesus uses that image. That was, it would have been a very visceral image for people mm-hmm. to describe hell. So when he talks about the worm dying not and the flame never going out, they actually had like a, a living metaphor of that right outside the gates of their city. Um, and it was a concept of judgment as well, that the place where worship used to happen has now been turned into this. So all of those ideas make it a really fitting metaphor for hell. Um, but then there's other places where it doesn't seem to be just using word pictures and metaphor, metaphoric. It talks about the smoke of their torment goes up forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does talk about fire. Whether that's fire that's exactly like fire in our day and age, or whether it's a fire that's even worse, but our fire gives us an idea of what that fire is like, I, I don't know for certain. Um, but I tend away from the metaphorical and towards the literal. That's my default. Um, but I'll acknowledge it might be something that's less literal than, than what we understand. But even if it is a metaphor, um, if you've ever been burned before, if you've ever put your hand in the fire or something like that, you know what that feels like. There's, there's nothing like it um, in our human experience. And so what better way to describe something that is truly awful and eternal than fire? So I would be charitable towards those who lean away from the literal, but I, I lean towards the, the literal for those reasons. So anything you'd want to add to that? Agreed. Okay, good questions. Yeah, Adam. Um, so I have a question about this. Uh, there's a comparison to 
so is hell under the earth. Some people say it's at the center of the earth or whatever. Um, is that what the Bible is saying? Um, I think that's hard to demonstrate that it is a place, a physical place that you could get to. Um, my instinct would be that we as human beings don't have the ability to ascend into heaven. Like the Tower of Babel, I think, was a foolish enterprise. I don't think they could actually build it tall enough. I don't think we have a spaceship that can take us into heaven. Likewise, I don't think we could dig into hell and get into hell. Um, so I know there's older cosmologies and you know different things like that that do think of it that way, and we are given this kind of directional concept of going down into hell and up into heaven, and for good reasons, but I, I question whether that's a physical, um, geographical reality that you could actually get there, which kind of brings us into another question, um, which, which is one that, that we had written down here, and these are good questions. Um, what should we make of people who write books and talk about having died for 20 minutes, you know, they were on the hospital table, you know, they coded out, and they were clinically dead for 20 minutes, and then somehow, you know, they shocked them, brought them back to life, and they claimed to have been in heaven or to have been in hell, and then they write a book talking about what it's like, and then they go on tours and get rich selling this book, you know, for a couple years until somebody else writes another book that's just like it. How should we think about, um, we could be a little cynical and call it these heaven and hell tourism books. Um, how should we think about those books? I don't know if you, have you ever read any of those? I've never read any. Uh, I haven't either. I've seen the interviews, but I haven't read the books. Yeah. So, so I, w- I would say it's a waste of time. It's not authoritative. Um, so experience is not the primary authority. And if it is, it will lead you astray every time. Um, uh, Genesis 3 talks about the fall. And if we are sinful, then we can't really rely 100% on all of our perceptions and experiences and say that that's authoritative. God is authoritative. And so to put our trust and depend on and make decisions off of others um, would just be foolish. Um, and that's what Proverbs talks about a lot too. Um, but the, the wise man trusts in the Lord, but the foolish one um, goes about his own way. So just thinking through... Um, whose authority am I leaning on? And I think it would be unwise for us to give any sort of credence or support or invest in something that, that is really just one person's opinion. I want something more than that um, to stake my life on um, than just somebody's opinion. Yeah, I think several years ago there was one in particular. I think it was called Heaven is for Real. You guys remember that one? I think it was about a little boy. Um, there was a book. There was a movie. You know, There was all sorts of celebrity and I believe that later they came out and said they fabricated the whole thing, if I'm remembering correctly. I know there's been several of these that were later um, admitted to be hoaxes. So we should just be cautious about that when people um, can make money off of us. You know, we should just be cautious. And um, some people will fabricate these things for attention. And even if people do have a vision, even if they do have a very realistic dream and they're convinced it was real, um, and they're very sincere. Sincerity does not equal truth either. Um, keep in mind that Satan is a deceiver, and someone can have an experience, and it can be truth mingled with error. If you read these books and listen to these accounts, um, they either just recapitulate what's already in Scripture, in which case we don't need them. Like they didn't tell us anything we didn't already know. Or they tell us things that contradict Scripture, in which case we know they're wrong. So in either sense, we don't need those, those kinds of books. So I would encourage you, don't buy them, don't read them. It's a waste of your time, like Stephen said. 
We have something so much better. We have the revealed word of God. And if God wanted us to know more, he would have put it in the Bible. Um, So we don't need those other experiential type stories. And we should be very cautious of them because they often contradict scripture. Mm -hmm. So we have maybe three more minutes. and, And we're pretty much through questions here that I had written down. There was one question somebody submitted, and I'm just going to get with you after and talk about annihilationism. So, Dominic, just ask me later. Any other questions about heaven, hell, death, the intermediate state, resurrection? We'll see, maybe get one or two more in. Cody? Are you guys going to get into the white throne judgment, therefore degrees of heaven in the future? Are we going to get into the white throne judgment, degrees of heaven? Maybe just talk a little bit. There's two different judgments We didn't have time to get into these. We might talk about it a little bit, um, but we won't be talking about the nature of those judgments in depth as much as just showing where they fit maybe in the timeline. And what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It it will be more more in the um, cosmic side of eschatology, but there is a judgment for uh, believers and unbelievers. So um, scripture talks about both and both being either a judgment of um, condemnate to to condemn or a judgment to commend um, to say, um, this is what was done for Christ. And even the, that judgment, though, everything that a believer does for the Lord, um, Scripture talks about um, silver, gold, and precious jewels, and wood, hay, and stubble, and that it's consumed in fire, and it's purified, and the wood, hay, and stubble burns away, and what remains is the treasure. Um, but all of that is cast at our king's feet um, as worship to him. Um, and it's, it's stuff that he has uh, produced in our life for his glory to reflect to him. So um, that judgment at that point is really to say, uh, it's an act of worship to say, Lord, this is, this is what you've accomplished through me. And I want to praise you and thank you for what you've done. So for a believer, that's something we look forward to and we pursue and we make every effort to strive for, um, to glorify him in that way. But it also says that what the Lord's doing today matters. Um, it's not just, oh, I'm saved. The rest of the life here is just for me to hang out and just be about me. That's not what we see in Scripture. What we see is that there's um, a preciousness to the sacrifice of Christ that actually compels and drives us to live a life of total worship and submission to Christ. Um, and that will be evidenced um, at that judgment at the end. Um, it will be a great time of worship. Yes, so the great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. Mm -hmm. Um, Depart from me, I never knew you. And it's saying your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life and sending them towards their eternal judgment. The Bema Seat judgment is different. That's for believers where, like Stephen said, our good works are put on the table. Um, So just as there's degrees of punishment in hell, there'd be degrees of reward in heaven. Now our entrance into heaven is secured by Jesus. We have nothing to do with that. Um, but there are various degrees of reward. And so that's why Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Um, so yes, there are different, two different judgments that are, that are going on there. And for the believer, we don't fear judgment um, because it's, it's looking forward to a reward for us. Um, for the unbeliever, judgment is only negative. But yeah, but we're out, out of time. What, we'll, let's go one quick one right here, and then we'll wrap up. Yes, we will talk about preterism the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, those things are all in the hopper. But we had all of these questions that already came in. We thought if we start talking about the return of Jesus and the millennial <laughs> kingdom, we're going to have 75 questions in no time. So this worked out good for our schedule and, and with questions. But yes, we will get to those different views about um, the coming kingdom and the return of Jesus and, and really get into the nuts and bolts of eschatology in the, in the coming several weeks. So, all right, we'll see you guys back here in 15 minutes for worship. Thanks for coming out this morning.